That's in your New Testament, the little book of Philippians. And today we'll be in chapter 4 if you want to have it on your lap. We also have the text up above in in just a a few minutes. I want to remind you of something that um, you would think is just common knowledge, but it's really not. When we, look, when we look at the New Testament and all of the different descriptions of believers, those who have put their trust, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and call upon his name and are followers of his, only three times in the whole New Testament are we called Christians. Only three times. And the term that describes us more than any other term, which appears 269 times, is the term disciple. Disciple. Which means learner. Uh, It means apprentice. It means one who is in the process of growing and being transformed and changing. If your Christian life does not include the concept that I am ever changing, I am ever growing, then your Christianity is greatly um, anemic. All of us must have in our hearts a longing to grow. No one here, me especially, is perfect. That's why we celebrate the gospel. That's why we look to Christ, the perfect one, who gave himself for us. But though we're not perfect, we are in process. Because his design in coming into your life and my life is to transform us and change us. The Bible was not given to us merely to satisfy our curiosity. It was given to us to transform our character and to make us more and more like him. 269 times a believer is called a disciple. Are you a disciple? Then closely connected to that is the Great Commission. We have our marching orders from from our commander-in-chief. He said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. So not only are we called disciples, but as we grow, as we progress, then we are to become disciple makers. We are to, uh, those of us who are maybe in the journey and down the road a little further than some others, are supposed to care about those and help them in their progress. And so it just keeps multiplying and multiplying. 
If this had not been his plan 2,000 years ago, none of us would be seated here today. We'd all be lost. We'd all be in darkness. We'd all be without hope. We'd all be living one day at a time, one foot in front of the next, waiting for the end without any real meaning, any purpose that has any eternal value or consequence. So the second question then is not only are you a disciple, because if you're a believer, you are one by definition, but are you concerned about others who have not quite journeyed as far as you have in the faith and you want to help them, which makes you a disciple maker. Are you a disciple maker? That's a little more difficult question. Now, when I came to this passage this week, like I told you at the beginning of this series, I have not pulled open a couple of my files because I've preached through Philippians twice in the past. Once about 40 years ago, once then again 10 years later. But I told you I was going to avoid my files and I was going to study the text and come to it in a fresh way so that I was learning. Because the Tony that's standing here is not the Tony that studied Philippians 20 years ago. I'm different, and so I wanted to come to the text fresh and see how God would speak to me and then through me for your benefit as well. So, we're coming to some verses today that are really familiar. They're some of the most favorite ones among us. In fact, any time there's a difficulty or a hardship or a trial or anything that causes us to be anxious or concerned or worried, we make a dash to this promise. But I never saw this before, you guys, and I hope you'll bear with me this morning. What you're going to get is the end product of my studying. Because I'm not going to just give it to you on the surface, what it says, make a few observations and an application and leave it at that. Because something in the text reached out uh, with a mouthful of teeth and bit me. I won't say where, but it bit me. (laughs) And got a hold of my attention, and then I realized what was happening that I had never seen before. And so this particular text, and by the way, with regard to discipleship, Dallas Willard wrote these words, and I thought it was excellent. He likened the the disciple like an automobile. And he says this, The disciple of Jesus is not the deluxe, heavy-duty model of the Christian, especially padded and textured and streamlined and empowered for the fast lane on the straight and narrow path. No. No. He stands on the pages of the New Testament at at the first level of basic transportation in the kingdom of God. Every believer is to become a disciple and then as we grow to help others in their discipleship and in their walk with the Lord. 
when you come to this text, you would say, Pastor, nobody preaches on discipleship from this text. This text is about worry. It's about anxiousness. It's about how if you'll pray, God will give you peace. And all of that's there. But there's more than that. And so I want you to see this with me this morning. The title of the message is a wake-up call to true discipleship. And we're looking at verses 5 through 9. And we'll read that. You can follow it up on the screen or you can look at it in your own version. This is the New American Standard Version. The one Paul used. Verse 5, Paul writes this. After, 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 after those beginning statements that he makes about rejoicing, you're my joy and crown, then he's, he says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Your, book, your, your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then verse 5, we read, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious or worried for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What I didn't see as so important last week was back up in verse 1. Paul wrote, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And we covered that, but we just kind of skipped over it. And the more I came back to this text this week, the more I realized that the main exhortation beginning this chapter is stand firm in the Lord. But it's prefaced with in this way. What way, Paul? Here's the way of stability in the Christian life. Here's the way of, of the disciples Spiritual stability, keeping your equilibrium, not losing your balance spiritually, not being derailed by the world or circumstances or gainsayers who reject the faith. Rather, 
to be able to live and walk as a disciple, a growing disciple, firmly, with stability. And that struck me. So I had to back up and look. And then I came to realize that when he says, I urge you, Odia and Syntyche, live in harmony in the Lord, and it's kind of a parenthesis. And then when you get to verse 5, he gets back to the main point in this way. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And so now from verses 5 through 9, he is giving us this way. What he meant by here's the way of stability in a world that's rather shaky. And so what you're getting this morning is sort of the result of my own musings and asking, Lord, what are you saying to me that I might share with our people? How would I personalize this and ask them to personalize it in their own walk with you? And so that's what we're looking at this morning. And it's fairly simple the, the, the way I've outlined it, the way I've put my thoughts, but I'm just sharing with you what God seemed to be impressing on my soul as I went through this text. So, here we go. In this way, stand firm in the Lord. In what way? Well, first of all, the Lord is saying to us through this text, verse 5, live before me. Live your life before me. Live for the audience of one, of God himself, of the Lord. For my presence with you is personal. Look at verse 5 again. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. What's interesting about this particular word, gentle spirit, it's a word that, just like all Bible translations, you have to come up with an English word that you think is an equivalent. This is a case where that's not even possible because the word that we translate um, gentle, erekes, is a word that's so rich that you can't do it. And if you had comparative Bibles eight different translations, they might all eight have a different word. That's because this word is so rich in meaning. And what it's really saying is, is, is to each of us, I want you, because of my presence with you, my constant, my constant presence with you, here's the disposition that I want you to cultivate. And gentle doesn't say it. This word means a sweet kind of reasonableness, a generosity, a goodwill, friendliness, magnanimity, charity toward the faults of others, um, Mercy toward the failures of others. Indulgence even of the failures of others. Leniency, big-heartedness, moderation, forbearance, and yes, gentleness. 
These are all words that try to bring out the richness of this single Greek word. What it's really saying is, my disposition and your disposition in every circumstance must be governed and affected not by the circumstances, not by the tension or lack thereof, not by the situation that we're in, but our disposition is to be governed and affected because we live before him. You remember that passage in Hebrews 4? It says in Hebrews 4 that there is nothing uh, excuse me, that's an, it says all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Meaning we live our lives before him all the time. His presence with us. And so this passage is saying, Tony, I want your disposition in every circumstance to reflect that you are living for an audience of one. For me, I'm your Lord. I'm your best friend. I'm your master. I'm your helper, your companion. I'm your comfort. I'm your strength. I'm your wisdom. I'm in you and around you and over you and under you. And I know everything about you and the circumstance you're in. Stay calm and cultivate a disposition that reflects your awareness of my presence. Isn't that rich? That's what this text is saying. Now, when it says, for the Lord is near, there's two ways this word near is translated. Uh, There's a translation of it that has to do with time or chronology. And then there's also a spatial concept of this word. And the more I've studied it and looked at it and read some reputable scholars, I think that it's not chronological. He's not talking about the, the coming of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is near. That's not it. He's saying the Lord himself is near, spatially. He's with you. Now that's the first one. A wake-up call to true discipleship and standing firm. God basically says to me, to you, live before me because my presence with you is intensely personal. Now, I have one little assignment for you. Simple assignment, and I challenge you to do it, because this is what I do. And Kathy does the same thing. We know that if you want to avoid people and avoid chatting with people, talking with people, don't go to Walmart. (laughs) So... From the, from the vehicle to the front door of Walmart, as I walked into Walmart, I pray. Lord, you're with me. And I don't know who I'm going to run into. Friend or foe. Needy. Hurting. 
or just joyful wanting to talk or lonely. I have no idea who I'm going to run into or what circumstances they're in. But pastors are a little bit like doctors sometimes. I used to do this to a doctor friend of mine. Every time I'd see him, I'd say, hey, doc. And I'd act like I was going to pull my pants. I've got this mole. And I would say this to <laughs> him. Uh, and he'd get a kick out of it. But pastors are like that. You run into people, and they, first of all, they say, oh, pastor, here's why I haven't been there for two weeks. And so they give you this rendition of all their justifications for not being in church as if that's all you cared about. I just want to say hi and see how they're doing. They're worried about telling me why they haven't been in church. And then once we get past that, then maybe we can get around to talking about something that's really valuable. But I challenge you, just do it for a month. Every time you go into Walmart, pray from your car to the front door and ask the Lord to prepare you because you live before him for the person you're going to be speaking to, that you might be a reflection for Jesus Christ, and you might even have an opening to share the word with that person. There's your challenge, no extra charge. Secondly, I want you to see, as I worked my way through this passage, the second is that God seems to be saying to my heart, Tony, not only do I want you to live before me, but I want you to, to depend upon me because my peace is protective. Look there at verse 6. Be anxious or worried about nothing. How much am I supposed to be anxious about? I mean, Lord, cut me some slack here, right? Nothing? Don't worry about anything. But instead of worrying in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving in your heart, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The other night at our home group, we did a fun little exercise. I said, how many of you believe lying is sin? Everybody. How many of you believe cheating is sin? Everybody. How many of you believe uh, adultery is sin? We could go down the nasty nine list of sins. And then I said, how many of you believe that worrying is sin? That it dishonors God? You live before him, right? But you're paralyzed with anxiousness and worry, which is an indication that you're not trusting him. You're not depending upon him. I thought of this illustration. You might think it's silly, but when you think about worry, we think of it, of course, in light of ourselves, anxieties and their effects upon us. But you ever stop to think, 
what does our worry do to the heart of God before whom we live? What's it do to him? Is it really that small of a thing? After all, we're all worried. We even make jokes about being a worry wart. I'm not sure how that figure, that metaphor works. Why worry and a wart? Uh, I guess you'll have to explain that to me sometime. But what does worry do to the heart of God? How does he feel about your worrying? Imagine you as a parent with your middle schoolers, two of them. And let's imagine your phone rings and the principal of the school calls and wants an appointment with you. And so upon arriving at school, you come in to the principal's office and find that three of your kids' teachers are there waiting with the principal. And this is what they say to you, Christian parent. Your child is becoming extremely depressed, distracted, so stressed and worried that they can hardly even concentrate or even participate in class. We want to know what's going on in your home. We want a sense of what kind of parents you are, how well you're caring for them, feeding them, providing for them, supporting them, even meeting their basic needs. Is there no love in your home? Is there no encouragement, no support, no provision at home? Is your home abusive and harsh? Why is this child of yours so paralyzed with worry? How would you feel as a parent, a conscientious parent who cares about your kids? How would you feel to get that kind of report? And then we wonder, how does our worrying and stressing, stewing is the word my mom always used, because I used to stew as a kid. Tony, what are you stewing about? It's all over your face. How does that, that anxiousness, that worriedness, that stewing, how does that affect the heart of God before whom we live, who's given us great and magnificent promises that by them we may become partakers of the divine nature How does it affect the heart of God? So I challenge you today, stop making light of worrying. It's not healthy, and it's not honoring to the Lord. He wants you to bring everything to him. And I know we lay it at his feet, and then 20 minutes later we come back and take it back again. Well, we just have to keep putting it there. Lord, you're in charge. You're in control of my life. Be anxious for nothing. And then, you've, you probably know this, but verse 7 is a fascinating verse. You know, I'm just like you. I've been watching the news a couple segments each day. Everyone in the world is riveted on what's happening in Ukraine. 
But out of all those things that we could talk about, one of the things that's really impressed me is that with the vast Russian army and arsenal, there has been a Ukrainian garrison posted around President Zelensky, and they've not been able to get to him. And sometimes he, he broadcasts to the whole world a garrison. That illustrates what verse 7 says. Look at it again. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard, and that word guard is precisely the word garrison. God's peace will surround your heart and your mind and protect you, watch over you. The peace of God, surpassing all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What an incredible promise. And how much better than worrying. Thirdly, God says to me, Tony, I want you to live before me, depend upon me. And then... He's saying, I want you to think with me. Now, you would have thought I would have put that, think about me. Well, let me ask you something. Is not the Holy Spirit in you? And is he not God? And has he not inspired the word so that we can have his illuminating help to understand it? God with me, around me, in me, through me, is not the Holy Spirit revealing Christ to you and to me. And so God says, no, I don't want you to just think about me. I want you to think with me. That's what becoming partaker of the divine nature means. Now, I've not arrived, and neither of you, but what a high honor and privilege that God says, I'm going to invite you into my close personal circle as a disciple. And I'm going to let you not only think about me, but I'm going to let you think with me. And that's what verse 8, I think, is saying. Finally, brethren, whatever's true, does God think about what's true? Yeah. He's the author of truth, right? Whatever is honorable... Does God think about things that are honorable? And right on down the list you could go. Whatever's right, isn't God's mind focused on what's right? Whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there's anything excellent or worthy of praise, think with me, God says. Join me, and I'll share my thoughts with you. And this word dwell at the end of verse 8, dwell on these things. It's really, it's the idea of it's a July afternoon and you've invited a couple friends over and you guys have laid out some of the nicest looking steaks. I mean, they are nice looking steaks. By the way, 
I was at the market one day, and I was looking at steaks. It's been a few years ago. And this older white-haired gentleman came up to me, and he said, uh, I see you're looking at the steaks. I said, yeah, they're on sale. I was thinking a barbecue would be fun. And, and he said, well, do you know how to pick a steak? And I said, no. Can you help me? And he said, well, I was a chef for about 30, 35 years. And believe it or not, the way you pick a good steak is you look both ways and make sure nobody in the store is looking at you. And then you mash on it with your thumb. I said, seriously? And he said, yeah. It's that simple. If it's got grains in it, if it's, if it's going to be tough, you'll feel it's firmer and harder. But if you find one where your thumb just wants to sink right in, break through the plastic that it's wrapped in, he says, that's the one you want. Now, has nothing to do with the message. I just, uh, <laughs> next time you want to have, but the point, <laughs> the point, you guys, is this. When Paul says these things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and of good repute, excellent, worthy of praise, God says, think with me. What he's saying is so live in my fellowship and think on these things, dwell on these things, that you are like that stake, hammered out, tenderized, and soaking in your best marinade all afternoon. Soaking in that marinade. God says, let these things be what your soul, your mind, and your heart soaks in. And what will be the result? The result is peace. Verse 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Did you notice the change? If you pray instead of worry and give thanks, then the peace of God will guard your mind and heart. But here Paul says, if you will follow my way of life, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, then not only will you know the, the peace of God, but the very God of peace will be with you to sustain you, to stabilize your walk with him. What a promise. How many stories I've read of the lives of the rich and famous who had so much of the world and they would have given it all up if they could just have peace. And God here says to his disciples, I will not only give you my peace, I will come to you. I will be the God of peace surrounding your life. Doesn't that sound good? <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Well, pastor, again, why the wake-up call to discipleship. Well, you know why, you guys? Because I don't know of another verse anywhere in Scripture that so describes what real discipleship is. You know what? Even the great Dr. Billy Graham, now home in glory, were Dr. Graham to 
accept my invitation years ago and come here. And we opened up the gymnasium at the middle school. And we had people from all over the county come. And he preached that wonderful gospel of the cross and the blood and the resurrection of Christ, trusting in him. And, and then he said, now, I want you to come. And then in his beautiful way, he would pray. And down out of the stands, they would come. And some of them would be very genuine, and they would give their lives to Christ. You know what, you guys? When that night was over, and we all thanked Dr. Graham, and they, and they whisked him off to the airport, and he, he and his whole um, entourage left us, guess what? That's precisely when the work would actually begin. Because discipleship takes an investment of your life and mine in the lives of other people. That's why so few do it. It costs something. Not one night and all the logistics and counselors to be up front and to care for the brand new baby Christians. What are you going to do with them now? Raising children. Well, you just go to the birthing room and you go through what you need to and you deliver this baby and they clean it up and you give it a name. They, they might need to slap it on the bottom and they wrap it all up and they hand it to you. Job's done, right? All finished. They're born. Is that the way we treat Christians? Baby believers, well, you're born again now. Good luck. No. We come alongside them. And I say this not like I'm on some high horse. I have a list in my drawer at my office of, I think, 16 or 18 names of individuals that I have gravitated toward who were willing to, to pour themselves into me and spend time with me. Because I understood as a disciple, I need to find others who are further down the road than I am that I could learn from. And after 40 years, I have an another list even longer of people who saw that they could come to me and spend time with me and I might be able to help them. And I'm not talking about being a pastor, you guys. I was doing this kind of thing before I ever went to Bible college or to seminary. Why? Because it seems the most natural thing. When you see a small child and they tell you, I'm so hungry, what do you do? Pat them on the head and say, you're so cute? No, you find them something to eat. We must get engaged. It's a wake-up call. We're to be disciples and disciple-makers. Right? All of us. And so in Paul's life, there was a pattern. He says, here's the pattern. Just look at me. He says, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Then there is imitating, emulating, practice these things. And with it then is the promise. 
the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. I don't know for sure that you're a Christian. Some of you I've known long enough to know that you really are a disciple, that you have given your life to Christ. You have trusted in him, God's provision for salvation, and you've looked to the Lord and called upon him. But I don't know everybody. But I can tell you this. If you're to ever know the peace of God in your life, you have to begin with a look, just a look. And that look is not within yourself. You want to be discouraged? Go rifling around in all of that trash. That's not where peace is found. You look away from yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself on the cross for you and rose again and lives and is able to save to the uttermost all who come by faith to him. So you look away from yourself, you look away from your disappointments in life, and you've had them. You look away from your present circumstances. You even look away from your past hardships, your past abandonments, your past sorrows. You look away from all of that. You look away from everything and everyone. And you look to Jesus Christ alone. Jesus, speaking of the cross, said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Have you ever given your heart to Christ? Have you ever said, Lord, I've tried it my own way and it's just not working? And as I try it my own way, I just seem to accumulate more sin, more failings, more discouragement, more guilt, more heartache. That's what I seem to get, doing it my own way. God never designed you to do it that way. He calls you to look away from yourself to Jesus Christ the the Lord. Look to him. Jesus said, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest, peace for your souls. If you don't know Christ this morning, you can give your heart to him right here, right now. That's how he works, see. I've gone as far as I can go as a preacher, as a teacher. I come up and now I stop. I can't open your heart to him. Only you can do that. I can't, I, I can't forgive your sins. I mean, I'd be happy to, but who cares what I forgive? It's what he forgives that matters. So I come up to this wall and now I've delivered the message. What are you going to do with it? It's true. If you don't think it's true, watch this. How many here have experienced the power of Christ and his cross and his blood and your soul and heart's been changed? Can I see a hand? There we go. Now, 
if it was only two or three, I might say, oh, you guys are out to lunch. But how do you have a whole group of people saying, I have a unique and individual relationship with Jesus Christ, <laughs> and there's no friend I have in this world like him. And by raising their hands, they were really saying, uh, break, with the, break with the crowd and join us. We might be the minority, but God loves us. We're his. Blood-bought children of God. Disciples, not perfect, but in process and growing. Amen? What a great book Philippians is. Do we have a closing song, Kath?